to Matthew chapter 6, I'd like to talk to you about what Jesus was talking to his disciples about in Matthew 6, a new way to live. In my Bible, as I look at it this morning up here on the pulpit, uh, it is completely red letters, and that means that these are the direct quotes of Christ. These are the words that fell from his lips. Now, I believe the Bible is the whole Bible is the whole Word of God, but, you know, I, when I get to the red letters, my heart pumps a little faster. Uh, I just kind of like to see the red letters. Uh, and Jesus here is sharing a message uh, with his disciples, and it's early in his ministry. And he's saying, in effect, now listen, if you're going to follow me, this is the way it has to be, this is the way it's going to be. And uh, I'm calling you to a new way of life. And so in verse number one, it goes like this. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from the Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may have glory from men. These people were giving to the poor, uh, not for the poor, but for themselves, for them to feel good, for people to come up to them and say, boy, you are really generous, uh, you are a wonderful benefactor for these poor people. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And for those of you who like to write in the margin of your Bible, uh, I encourage you to write this. They have their reward in full. That's it. There's no more. When somebody comes and pats you on the back for a good Christian deed, that's it. If you do it for the wrong purpose, but if you do it for the right purpose, there is a tremendous reward in the future for you. And we'll talk about that later this morning. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And that's just kind of a figure of speech. Do it, do it as secretly as you can. Don't blow a trumpet. That your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, in my Bible, there's a reference that says Luke 16, or Luke 14, excuse me. And there it says that the rewards are going to be given out in the day of resurrection. We believe in the resurrection. The resurrection is going to take place one of these days. And out of the ground, they're going to come the, the remains, the newly constituted remains of believers fashioned into the, the resurrected type body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's when the rewards are going to be given out at the resurrection time. Luke 14, 12 through 14. And then he goes on to another topic in verse 5. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray. And the word pray there is a word that means they like to pray for themselves. The whole benefit of their prayer was not for other people. It was for their own benefit. You know, we think we live in the me generation. Uh, the me generation came along, came a long time before us. These are people living in their me generation. Uh, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, and again, in full. But when you pray, go into your room, 
And when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now this is interesting. And what Jesus is saying is if you, if you decide not to receive the applause of men, I have a reward for you in the future that I will give you. And I know that you know that God's reward is going to be spectacular. Spectacular. So he said, listen, you just got to be patient. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask. And then he teaches them the Lord's Prayer, which is a model prayer for you and me to kind of frame as, a, as an outline for the things that we pray about. Then he goes on in verse 16 to another topic. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites, uh, with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, and again, in full. The only reward they will ever get is people coming up to them saying, you don't look too good today. Are you fasting? Yeah, I'm fasting. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. This is a wonderful passage of Scripture and so counter to the world's philosophy. Jesus is saying, in effect, when you follow me, you're going to march by a different drumbeat. And people are going to look at you and say, listen, I can't figure you out. But whenever you follow the Lord, it's for His glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all for the glory of the Lord, not for the glory of ourselves. And that's what was happening right here. These people were doing some good things, but they were doing them the wrong way. And so you and I fall into that category too sometimes. You know, we want to do the right thing, but we end up doing it the wrong way. This section, the first section, this first piece, is about good works. Good works. Now, we know in this church that we're not saved by good works, right? For by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. No number, amount of quality of good works can ever be credited for a person's soul. It can never be used as a boasting tool for somebody getting to heaven. Uh, there are not enough good works in the world to enable you to work your way to heaven. But once we are saved, that's when the whole idea of good works come to play. Because we have Ephesians 2.10. And Ephesians 2.10, let's read this this morning. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now this is pretty awesome right here. What this says is God made you. You are his workmanship. He crafted you. He made you special the way you are because he has a special plan for you and you alone. I can't fulfill the plan in your life. You can't fulfill my plan. God has a, 
a unique plan for all of us. And uh, that plan incorporates good works which he planned a long time ago somewhere back in the past. And so when, that means that when God looked down upon us sometime a long time ago, he saw you and he saw me. And in his infinite wisdom and his infinite knowledge, he crafted a plan for your life and for my life. A special little path that you alone walk. And a special little path that I walk. And we're not on each other's path. We all have an individual path. But part of that path he calls good works. Whenever a person, we are not saved because of our works, we're saved for good works. Now the Bible is sprinkled with these verses. Let me just give you a few. 1 Timothy 6.18 That they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to serve. Acts 9.36 At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Just full of good works. Matthew 5.16 Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You see how that fits in our story this morning? These people were doing good works, but for their own glory. Good works are to be done by you and me, but not for our glory, but for the glory of the Lord. 2 Timothy 2.21 says, If you keep yourself pure, you'll be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean. And you'll be ready for the master to use you for every good work. God wants to use you and me for good works. We could entitle this message, though, this morning, Motive is Everything. This lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us this morning is um, do it for the right purpose. Don't do good works with the wrong purpose in mind. And so we're going to consider three things. We're going to consider charity or charitable giving, giving to the needy, fasting, and prayer. Now in Jewish life at this time, now this was a surprise to me a number of years ago when I learned this. Um, in Jewish life at this time, they were the three main pillars of a good life. You know, we talk in our society, boy, I'm living a good life. You know, that means, that could mean anything, right? That means we have a, a home on each coast and one in Hawaii. But this is the good life right here back in that day, in the biblical day. These were the pillars of a good life. If a person was going to live a good spiritual life, they would be a person of charity, prayer, and fasting. Those were the pillars. Giving alms. These people that we read about this morning were giving alms, charity. Uh, they were generous, but they wanted to bask in the gratitude of other people. They were praying, uh, but they weren't addressing God. They were looking for a pat on the back. Oh, how beautiful you pray. You are so articulate. I wish I could pray like you. And when people said that to them, they said, Ah, oh, I'm really great, aren't I? And then they were fasting uh, to show how disciplined they were. It wasn't for the good of their soul. It didn't make them humble. It made them proud. You see, they were doing the right thing for the wrong reason. And so this is where the Christian life comes in. 
Because the Lord hates pride, we have this inbred, instinctive, insatiable desire for pride. Lord, the Bible says God hates pride. But he loves the humble. He loves the people that will point the blessing to him. And so let's look at the first thing, almsgiving, charity. The right way to give. Charity is blessing others. The first pillar of, of Jewish life back in that day was to be a blessing to other people. Uh, they were to live out of themselves, not just for themselves, but to live out of themselves. Uh, this stood as the, uh, as the first point in good works. Actually, I found out that in the Old Testament, almsgiving and righteousness are the same word in the Old Testament. And that means to give alms and to be righteous was one and the same thing. And that's why we put that first column as charity. Now, he said these people were hypocrites. Uh, a hypocrite at that particular time, and this time too, is an actor. Someone who pretends to be another, an impersonator. Uh, the, and the actual word hypocrite means uh, someone who wears a mask, a theatrical mask. Uh, and so when they used that word back in that day, this is the picture they got. And so when Jesus said, listen, you're doing this service for God uh, and you're putting your religious mask on and you want everybody around you to think that you're religious. But I know who lives behind the mask and I call you a hypocrite. You're doing this not for someone else but for you. And so here, remember we said as we read through that, that they're going to have an earthly reward. Uh, and what that means is no reward in heaven. And so they're giving money out to the poor. And uh, the Lord says, listen, you better enjoy it because that's the only reward you'll ever get for it. Now, now in many ways today, our giving cannot be as secret as we want it to be. I told the people in the first service that we in our church try to make your giving here to the church as as confidential as we can. There are only a few people in this church that take your envelopes, make those recordings so that at the end of the year you can take that information uh, to, uh, to your person who does your taxes, whether it's you or someone else. And we are very, very careful and confidential with everybody's records and we keep that circle just as small as it can be because we want to follow the guidelines of the Bible as close as we can as a church. Uh, I or nobody in the staff knows what anybody's giving. In fact, I don't even know what I'm giving. My wife is the treasurer at our house. She keeps the books. And when we go to the person to do our taxes, then I find out what we get. <laughs> And so it's as confidential as we can make it. Now, in our world, sometimes we have to give a public offering. You know, sometimes there's a special need that comes up and you'll go up and hand the check to somebody or do something like that. Well, there's nothing really wrong with that if you're doing it for the right reason. You're not doing it to blow a trumpet. Uh, and so what we want to do these things with the right motive. We are called to care for the poor. And Jesus here in this passage of scripture assumes that we will do that. 
care for the poor. The next thing he talks about is prayer. Prayer is communion with God. Where do we pray? Well, these people were praying in the synagogue. That's good. That was their church. But they were also praying on the street corners. They were praying three times a day. Psalm 55, 17 says, Evening, morning, and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and the Lord will hear my voice. They prayed at 9 o'clock at noon and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so I don't know whether a trumpet was blown at the hour of prayer, but I, do, I have read this, that these hypocrites would somehow know that they were getting close to the hour of prayer and they would get in some conspicuous spot in some intersection where a lot of people could see them pray just so happen at the right time, just happened to work out that way. They wanted to impress people. But the Bible says that whenever we pray, look what it says in verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father in the secret place. That's the way I want you to pray. This is where real praying is done. Now, I've told you before, when I was a young kid, I went to church, and our old-fashioned Bible-preaching pastor taught us the Bible. And we were studying this passage one time, and in the, our old translation, it says, rather than room, it says closet. Go into the closet. And so me being the nine- or ten-year-old boy that I was, I took that literally. And I was impressed to go home and get in the closet. I really was. This is not a preacher story. This is truth. Get in the closet. And so I remember as vividly today as it was that day that I went home to our little house in Sheridan, Pennsylvania, 1333 Tyndall Street, after that evening service, and I got in the closet. Our closet once in one of these big walk-in closets. It was about this big, I think. We could only fit my mother's Hoover vacuum cleaner in that closet. You know how dirty an old Hoover vacuum cleaner was? You could smell it about four rooms away from where you were. And so here I am, this little kid, in this closet, trying to carry out what the Bible teaches, praying in the closet. Well, I, was, I remember I was fearful. I thought, well, I hope this door doesn't lock and I get caught in here and somebody can't find me. Uh, I only did that a few times, praying in the closet, till I finally realized that this, the word room there, it actually does mean Rome, but when that Bible was translated, everybody understood that the closet was just a room. Uh, it was a, a secret place. Actually, the word room here in our scripture uh, was, has uh, the meaning of a place where treasure is stored. And so I have to believe that when you get alone with God, some real treasuring things take place, don't you think? And he says here, where to pray? Pray in private. Find a place you can close the door. And then don't use vain repetitions. What does that mean? Words without meaning. All lips without mind or heart. Uh, one rendering says babbling. Don't babble to God. Short prayers can be powerful. Somebody told me one time, I have so much pain in my heart, I can't even pray. Well, that's called silent prayer. Uh, he wants us to bring our needs to him. And he gives us the model prayer here, and, and we pray like that. 
Prayer is communion with God. It's a time of honesty. You know, he doesn't say that not to pray in public. But public prayer, you can't be honest with God, you know that? Public prayer is a little frightening. Every time I'm called, no matter where I am and no matter how many times I've done this, if I'm called on to pray, I begin to question myself, can I really do this? Will what I say be honoring to God and intelligible? Will it be the right thing? Well, you know, when you pray to the Lord in private, you don't have to worry about any of that. Because you just get down and you talk to him in the vernacular, the colloquial lingo. Pittsburghese, if you will. That's the way you talk to God. And so when you are private, when you have private prayer, you can be honest with God. And I think that's what God wants us to be, honest. And then there's fasting. Fasting is clarity of soul. Fasting can increase our hunger for God. Going without food to focus on the Lord. John Piper in his book, Hunger for God, says this. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things, and there's no room for God. God did not create you for this. There is an appetite in us for God, and it can be awakened. He said, I invite you to turn from the dull, now follow me, the dull effects of food. Now how, how about that? He says, I invite you to turn from the dull effects of food and the dangers of idolatry to, to say with simple fast, this much, O oh God, I want you. Fasting was a practice in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. Everybody in Israel fasted on that day. The Puritans said that fasting was called soul-fattening fasting. It was a way to build your soul. It was an act of national repentance. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 3, the Bible says there, Jehoshaphat feared the Lord, and he set his face to seek God, and he declared a fast throughout all of Judah. Uh, enemies were coming against Israel, and uh, Jehoshaphat says, hey, we better pray and fast. Fasting in the Bible was preparation for the revelation of God. Moses fasted 40 days. Esther called a fast because the nation of Israel was going to be wiped out. Daniel fasted as he waited on God's revelation. Jesus fasted. You know, fasting is still biblically in style. It really is. And uh, here these scriptures imply God's not commanding us to fast. He, is ex he expects us. To fast. That's like a given. We fast. Now, not everybody can fast from food because some people have to eat at certain times. I'm sure there are probably many people in our church like that. You have to, have, you have to eat at certain times and keep your blood sugar going in the right direction. But uh, you can fast in a different way. You can fast from other things. Um, it's a wonderful thing to be able to do that. Um, the hypocrites fasted, I think it was on Monday and Thursday, and the New Testament church, church like ours, they made a law. Listen, you can't fast. You can't fast on the days that they fast. We're going to start a new day of fasting. We're going to fast on Wednesday and Friday. And about 13 years ago, I started to fast. 
on Wednesday and Friday, and I didn't know that that was even in history at all, but I, that's my fasting days, Wednesday and Friday. And, and I recommend it if you're physically able to do it. Um, well, it's doing it with the right thing. I've only mentioned that a couple times in the church, and I've only mentioned it for your, for your instruction, that's all. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5 says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsel of the hearts. There's coming a day when God is going to pass out the rewards. We call it the judgment seat of Christ or the reward seat of Christ. You probably heard it termed the Bema seat. Now, at the resurrection, at the resurrection, Luke 14 that's when the rewards, remember he said, I will reward you openly. I think we could add to that in heaven. That's when we are rewarded for the work that we do on earth in heaven. Now, we, we never stand at a judgment for our sins because Jesus has already stood at our judgment for our sins. Romans 8 1 says this, therefore, uh, we are, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not condemned, we are forgiven. And you've heard me say this before <clears throat> of all of our sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. Hebrews 10 17 says, our sins and iniquities will be remembered no more. When Jesus says, we are forgiven, we're forgiven. And so when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, we're not talking about being judged for our sins. We don't have to stand before the Lord and say, and God's going to bring up our sins because that's already covered, that's already been dealt with on the cross. But he is going to judge our works at the judgment seat of Christ. Of what sort they are, what our motive was for serving Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that, we, that everyone may receive the things done in the body according to that he hath done, whether it is good or bad. And so this fits completely into what we're talking about this morning. 1 Corinthians 3.12-15 gives us a little bit more information, and we'll move through this. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. One of these days, your works and my works will be judged by Christ, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort or motive it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on, endures the test, he will receive a what? A reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. There are some people that are going to barely be saved. Barely. But there are a lot of other people who serve the Lord with the right motive, and God put their work to the fire and found that it was for real. It wasn't to get anybody's applause. It wasn't to please mother or dad or boyfriend or girlfriend. It was for Christ. 
then that person receives a reward. We call it a crown. And in the Bible, the Lord is going to give certain crowns out, and we'll deal with that some other Sunday. But these crowns that he gives us at the reward seat of Christ are given to us for us to worship him in heaven with our crowns. Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist. And so on earth, when we serve the Lord with the right motive, we get a crown for this particular thing and for that particular thing. But it's not for us. It's for him. It's to cast down before his throne. Well... Doing works for Christ with the right motive is what this section is about. Giving in need to people in need without fanfare. Praying in private. I want to encourage you today to go home and find a place, not the closet, unless you have a walk-in one. Find a good place you can close the door and uh, get honest with God. And uh, there you can be honest. Pray in private and fast in secret. I know people, and I, I'll just mention this, through the years, that have faced impossible situations. And they fasted and prayed, and they received a blessing from the Lord. So fasting and praying is, um, it goes together. And I want to encourage you in those areas. Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning, uh, I, I want to encourage you as a non-believer in the church this morning to come to Christ, uh, to begin to li live a life that, will, that God will reward in the resurrection. You know, you can live a life here in this world and people will pat you on the back one day and take away all that the next day from you. But the Lord's rewards are, are forever. And so, if you're an unbeliever, I want to encourage you to come and join this band of disciples of the Lord. And begin to get serious about the things of Christ so that your life is, is, counts for Christ. You can, at the end of the road, you'll be able to look back and say, well, I'm glad I did that. And if you're here as a Christian, maybe you've been just mechanically going through the Christian life, you know, checking off the list, the to-do list. I do this, I do this, I do this, but with very little thought about why you're doing it, I want to challenge you for, uh, in this area, let's do it because we love Christ, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, with the right motive. Now, we're preparing our heart now to take communion, and I'd like to ask our men to prepare to get in their spot for communion. And as we prepare to serve our congregation, I want you to look down into your heart today and see if there's anything in there that would be a barrier between you and your fellowship with God today. And right now in this holy hour, I ask you to 
bring that before the Lord and say, Lord, just forgive me for this. Forgive me now. I want to have all these things worked out so that when we partake of communion together, I'll truly be in communion with you. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this time that we can come together and think about what you did for us on the cross through communion. We pray that you will uh, draw us close to you, especially during this time as we pass the emblems of the broken body and the shed blood. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Gentlemen, please serve the congregation. And as they serve this little piece of bread to you, I'd like for you to take this little piece of bread which is emblematic of our Lord's broken body and cherish it and just uh, be reminded this morning of what Jesus did, the punishment he took. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. He took our punishment. And just offer up a, a prayer to the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, for this, and retain that little piece of bread until we've all been served, and then we'll partake together. given thanks he broke it and said take eat this is my body which is broken for you this do in remembrance of me so he took the cup gentlemen please prepare to serve the church receive this little cup of grape juice this morning cherish it whisper a prayer to the Lord thank you God for doing this for me the scripture says in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins this is the price we are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from tradition but we are redeemed through the blood of Christ and retain that cup until all of us have been served
the same manner also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. people said a hearty amen. amen. Thank you. Let's uh, stand to be dismissed. For those of you who are coming tonight for choir practice, please keep that on your schedule and highlight it. Uh, we invite you to come and be a part of that. Turn around and shake hands with your neighbor. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank mm -hmm. you.